This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Based on theories of meaningful learning and education, co-founder and associate director at IHMC, Alberto Carras, presents a software tool that allows users to collaborate in the construction of shared knowledge models based on concept maps, which are used worldwide by users of all disciplines and ages, from elementary school students to NASA scientists. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Okay. Well, first I'd like to uh, thank the organizers for the invitation. Um, yesterday when David asked at the very beginning how many in the audience were designers, I didn't raise my hand. And then he said how many um, are in marketing, and I didn't raise my hand. And then they said, how many are you ever interested in business? And I didn't raise my hand, so I said, well, what I'm doing here? Uh, <laughs> probably, probably made a mistake, uh, invited the wrong guy. Um, I'm, I'm a researcher, I'm not a designer. Um, I work at a, at a research institution in Pensacola, Florida. We're a multidisciplinary group. We started as part of a computer science department of the University of West Florida. But since we like, to, uh, we like to work with psychologists and philosophers and linguists and other people, then the head of the computer science says, you shouldn't be sending money to those guys. They're not computer scientists. So we, we move up to the dean. The dean didn't like us sharing with other colleges, so we move up to the provost. Uh, the provost didn't like the fact that we send a lot of money to other universities we collaborated with, so we move up to the president, then to the board, then we declared independence. So now we're affiliated with universities, and uh, from there on, I don't know, it would be the United Nations or where we move up to. <laughs> Um, but we're a group of uh, about 120, uh, many, uh, uh, quite a few, uh, mostly researchers, and we got computer scientists, we got uh, engineers, medical doctors, uh, linguists, uh, economists, philosophers, psychologists, all working together. So it's a fun place to be. Uh, and what we mainly do is human-centered computing. and. Uh, Human-centered computing has, has to do with trying to, well, as, as, as it was said yesterday, put the human, the user first. We try to put the human first. Uh, for example, if, uh, if the computer companies design glasses, there were only two glasses, and you would either put on your Windows glasses, and it didn't fit, then you put on your Apple glasses, and whatever way, you have to adapt it then, because, I don't know, maybe there would be a business version that it has a wider for your head, but eyeglasses are adapted to each personal need, right? Uh, both in terms of, of, of magnification, in terms of your nose, your ears, and you feel comfortable with it. Well, one thing we want to like to do is, well, understanding the human, try to 
design systems that are tailored to the human. I'll just give you two or three examples and then move on to what, what, what I want to talk about, which is more about concept mapping. This is an interface that allows you to see through your tongue. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware, but the, uh, after the eye, the tongue is probably the most sensible uh, organ in your, in your body. Uh, the number of pixels is not really very well understood. Uh, the tongue has been uh, investigated a lot in terms of flavors, but not in terms of pixels, but there are quite a few pixels. In fact, uh, if you ever have a cavity, the, the tongue makes it feel very large, right? You feel like you have a huge hole, like a volcano crater in there. Well, it's really very small. That's because it's very sensible. And you, actually, you don't see through your eyes. You see through your mind. Your eyes is just the input device. So it happens that if you just put a little plate like this into the mouth, the person can adapt to it and start seeing through the mouth. And these are the type of images. At least you can identify a face. And you can get blind people walking, following some kind of a line uh, by understanding how, the, how we really see. So that's part of, well, if we understand the theory behind sight, can we provide devices that help? And of course, this is, this is quite interesting. Um, Second example I wanted to show is uh, we've taken all the cockpit displays. I mean, you guys are designers, and you know that the, the gauges come back from the, from, the, from the trains, and we still see them in the airplanes. And not only that, uh, when they make the digital displays, they put exactly the same interface, right? They make the gauges look exactly the same, even put a little bit of shadow on them. And what we did is there's a guy that works with us. is an expert in peripheral vision. And it happens, as was mentioned yesterday, that peripheral vision is something that you can process in parallel to, your, to what you focus. Somebody throws a, hand, a, a ball at me, I, I raise my hand. I'm not really looking out for balls coming at me. It's just something that's done in parallel. And it happens that you can process this. The, the, the level of granularity of what you see peripherally is not the same as what you focus on. But you have the whole cockpit of an airplane put in a little display with peripheral vision. And we can have uh, pilots navigate in a simulator through turbulence while reading text just by processing everything peripherally. And that's something they really haven't taken advantage of it. So understanding peripheral vision allows us to design things like that. Uh, third example has to do with other inputs to the haptic in inputs into the, into the humans. Uh, having, for example, a, a vest that can provide the pilot's feedback as where what the orientation of a helicopter is. If you're in, in, in Iraq and it's a sandstorm, and, and people are shooting at you, and you're trying to raise your, uh, get your soldiers up into a helicopter, the last thing you're aware is that your helicopter is moving one way or other, and you're not looking at the instruments to see how you are. If you can provide feedback, like a buzzer saying, hey, you're leaning this way, leaning the other way, that helps a pilot uh, be able to, to uh, orient himself. Uh, lastly, uh, one last project we've been working on has to do, have been uh, designing a new rover for the moon that's more centered on protecting the, the, the user, the, 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 the previous version of the, uh, what I'll call it, the rover in the moon, remember, left the, the astronaut completely uncovered, which didn't protect him from the flare, so there was not much possibility of, uh, of the astronauts going very far away from, from wherever habitat they were having. So all these, and this of course has to do with, well, what, what are the human needs? What are the humans, um, uh, how can the humans survive in that environment? But what I'm going to talk about has to do more with uh, knowledge representation and how do people 
understand, share, and communicate knowledge. And we've developed some so software called CMAP tools. I'm not going to spend that much time on the software. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the, about the, uh, about the use of the software. So all this, I, I gave this introduction, well, a little bit to tell you what we do, also because we deeply understand that we need to understand the theory behind any project we get involved with. The theoretical foundation is key. If we didn't understand peripheral vision, we could not dis uh, design that display. If we didn't understand how, to, how we see in the mouth, uh, the tongue, we wouldn't be able to, to, um, to design that other system. And I'd like to explain a little bit about the, 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 the theoretical foundation by going back to when men wanted to fly. And women probably also wanted to fly, but they were le less verbose then. Uh, they probably wanted to fly, but they didn't say it as much. And you can imagine uh, the, the people would go and look at the birds and say, oh, it's the feathers. If we could put feathers on, we'd probably be able to fly because, you know, birds have feathers. And, uh, and of course, you know that fly is one of those words that's taken a, a, a different meaning. When you say, I'm going to fly to uh, Seattle tomorrow, it's not, you're not going to get on the top of the building and start moving your arms until you get to Seattle. Now you get on a plane, and that's flying. Um, you can imagine... Uh, Probably uh, the professor uh, with his graduate student, the graduate student will be the one that jumped. That's his master's thesis, <laughs> right? And there's always, there's always more students willing to take the next thesis. And the professor, hmm, it's not the feathers. It's probably the beak, right? If we put on a beak, we'd be able to fly, right? So the next student's master's thesis would probably be the beak, and he'd jump, and who knows what would happen to him. And actually, the, I could give a whole talk on the artificial flight because it's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, I, I always like this, 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 this sign because I can't figure out how this guy is going to determine where he's going. I mean, and in fact, if this were not bird but monarch uh, uh, butterflies from what we learned yesterday, he'd probably be migrating all the way to Mexico and back, right? Um, but, but a lot of the, of the artificial flight issues uh, really come home when, when we talk about adopting any new technology. For example, there's one guy who said, have you ever seen a bird fly with clothes? The only way to fly is naked. And since we cannot go around naked, we're never going to be able to fly. Actually, there's a guy who wrote a paper, a physicist, who wrote a paper and who proved that men, and of course women, because men can fly, women can fly, would be able to fly, but he proved mathematically that once they got into orbit, they would not be able to land. So he predicted a lot of people just on orbit forever uh, because there was no way to land. And of course, sometimes when we, when, when we look at new systems, we look at the wrong level of abstraction. For example, here you would say, ah, of course, it's the neck. If we hand somebody all night from the neck, maybe it's the long neck will make them fly. And there is information here of why birds can fly. They have hollow bones. It's not clear here. It's the, the, the bone structure is, is important. But we just didn't under, understand the underlying theory. Uh, empirical evidence of flight. Imagine going to the NSF and say, I know that for 2,500 years, I, 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 it didn't get the project right. Give me more money. I know this time I'm going to get it right, right? <laughs> and actually, something flew for four seconds here, but it's not clear. It wasn't well documented. Somebody threw a dog and it took four seconds to land there. What happened? <laughs> uh, who knows? <laughs> anyway. So we laughed, but we know that once they figure out what the, the difference in pressure and the theory of aerodynamics was, was explains flight, and now I think we learn it in elementary school probably, right? And that's all you need to know, and then things fly. It's very simple. 
right? So if you understand the theory, then you can design and implement your system. But flood is not the only example. Uh, this is one of the first trains. You can see the rail here. And it's got a wooden horse in front. Why? Well, because we tend to, on uh, new technologies, use whatever we had seen before. We use the same gauges. We look at the birds and see, oh, it must be feathers and beaks. And we look at the, take a train, we have to put the horse in front of it because we've always had a horse in front of us. So we need to have a horse. Now, moving along, I have a different view of the, of Gutenberg's Bible. And of course, the page, we got a whole explanation, interesting explanation yesterday about the page. But along comes the web. And what do we put on the web? We put a page. Why? It's just like feathers and beaks, because since we have been using pages for hundreds and hundreds of years, we put a page. And of course, I'm not, I don't have anything about a page as display, but we use the page as a way to organize. And remember when people, when the word surfing the web made sense? And you would spend the night surfing the web. Nobody surfs the web. You go Google in and out because there's nothing to surf. It's just such a mess. There's no surfing that can take place. Uh, and then we take, we take the book and we, have a, we take a textbook and we put the textbook completely linear. And, and courses, we put courses on the web and completely linear, chapter one, chapter two, and all the students have to go at the same time because they have to chat or whatever. So we take something that's absolutely nonlinear like the web and we make it linear because we've been used to a linear medium like the like the book. So all this has to do with, uh, well, do we understand the foundations of aerodynamics that let us fly? Do we understand information, organization, and browsing? Can, do, we, do we use the theory really to design new systems? Uh, information architecture. Actually, I, I still don't trying to understand what, what this community does, but I, but, uh, I understand you are, you're trying to figure out yourself too. Uh, I, I, met a, I met a knowledge architecture two weeks ago, so it's, I mean, are they above you, underneath you? Who, what's the relation between information architecture and knowledge architecture? Huh? Depends on, yeah, you ask him. And what I'm interested in really in my work is, well, knowledge construction and meaningful learning. Uh, do we understand the theory for that? And the work we do have to uh, uh, do with concept maps. And one of the interesting things about concept maps with very few people, few people know is that it does have a very strong theoretical foundation. And concept maps facilitate the ex explicit expression of knowledge. But knowledge is an interesting word. You know, um, there's, uh, we all talk about knowledge construction. We have, I mean, there's VP, uh, vice presidents of knowledge, and there's knowledge management uh, conferences and knowledge management gurus that make a lot of money, and knowledge architects, and we talk about knowledge. But very few people tell us what knowledge is. So they give us a triangle and say, so you have data, you have information, you have knowledge. Well, that doesn't tell us what knowledge is. Um, there's a, one of the books on the gurus on, on knowledge management say, well, knowledge is when I put in practice what I know. Well, I can be very knowledgeable about something, not share it with anybody. That's still knowledge, right? So if we talk about knowledge management, we, we construct knowledge. We say that every children, every child should construct their own knowledge in school. But we never tell anybody what knowledge is. Can you go out and buy two pounds of knowledge? Uh, so we work from knowledge, from, uh, from the theory of knowledge and the theory of learning, uh, Novak, who's part of our team, and he invented concept maps, and David Alsobel, who really was the one who came out with meaningful learning, and uh, unfortunately he, he died about uh, two or three months ago. And knowledge is composed of concepts that are perceived regularities or patterns, objects, things, or events. And yesterday we got a very good example when it was mentioned, uh, because they mentioned the horse. When you think of a horse, 
you think of a lot of things related to the horse. Well, the horse is a concept, right? And he said, well, for some, the horse was a good experience. For the others, a horse is a bad experience. But the horse is a concept. It's a term that we have in our head. So life is a concept. Cell is a concept. The color blue is a concept. We might not perceive it the same, but we agree on the color blue. A ship is a concept. And when you think of ship, you might think, oh, yeah, that's a cruise ship I'm going to take in December. Or it might be the little boat that your son had in the tub this morning when I was taking a bath. Or, every, or maybe the sailboat you go out on the weekend. But a ship will have a different meaning to everybody. And the meaning is related, it's because it's related with other concepts. Democracy, we might not all agree what it is, but well, democracy. And some things that we, we haven't even seen. If a unicorn came in into the, into the room, we'd probably be surprised by say, hey, there's a unicorn. Um, and concepts, concepts are important, but concepts but themselves are not knowledge. Because I could put a, a, a six terms in Chinese there and say those are concepts. And you might even memorize them for the test at the end of the lecture. And you come back and you figure out a way because we all uh, had, I don't know, 12 or 16 years of, of training and how to memorize lists of things and repeat them on the test. Whichever way, whether it was uh, with uh, some music, whatever, writing it in our leg, whatever we have to do to get through. <laughs> But really, the knowledge is not only concepts, it's concepts and propositions, where propositions are formed by two or more concepts. And really, we consider the proposition to be the smallest uni unit of meaning or a claim, a claim in which we, we say something. Like we can say, the ship is blue. Okay, there are two concepts, the ship and blue. And we're establishing a relationship between those two concepts. And that's really the smallest unit of knowledge is whenever we put two concepts together. Birds have hollow bones. Well, that's something that tells the, 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 the bones and the birds are hollow. I understand what hollow bones is, and I establish a relationship with them. So the concepts by themselves don't have the meaning. The concepts have a universe around them. That's their relations to other concepts. Now, propositions don't have to be true. There are things that I claim to be true, but don't necessarily have to be true, because I could say there is life in other planets. And nobody knows whether that's true or false, but it's still a proposition, it's still a claim. So what the theory tells us is what we have in our cognitive structure is just a huge collection of concepts linked together forming propositions. That's the way we construct knowledge. We construct knowledge by linking new concepts to concepts that I previously had acquired. And I, if I switch now and started talking about uh, neurosurgery, it might be that you get lost. Why? Because your cognitive structure does not have any way to link the new terms that I'm referring to, the terms I'm referring to, what, to what you already understood. There's no way to build new knowledge on what I say because there's nothing to link it to. So key in knowledge construction is what, would, what does the person know so that you can link new concepts? If we don't know what the person knows, there's no way we can help them learn something new. Okay. So... The theoretical foundation, besides the theory of knowledge, has to do with meaningful learning. And meaningful learning tells us that, well, each person must construct her and his own meanings from concepts and propositions over experiences of time, building her and his knowledge structure. In other words, each of us builds their own knowledge structure. It's a different personal knowledge structure. It's a different relations between these concepts. And that's the way we learn. Uh, and each person has to want to learn, and the learning has to be meaningful in the sense that it's not only interesting, it's able to link to structures that I already have. If, it, if I can't make any linking, there's no way it will work. 
In other words, what's happening here, which supposedly your heads are in and my nuggets of knowledge are going in, uh, we really know what's going on. Uh, and, and, you know, when your teacher, you tell, but I, I, thought, I told that in class. Why didn't the students get it? Well, you know what was, what was happening. So, really, there's a big distinction between meaningful learning and rote learning, but I'm not going to get uh, anyway, anywhere beyond this. Uh, but I do want to say what, what, what Alcibel was uh, in, his, in one of his books was said, well, if I had to reduce all of educational psychology to just one principle, I would say the most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this and teach him accordingly. In other words, if I don't know what the student knows, how can I help them learn? Whether the student is a manager or a third grader. Now, we got, we got around this very easily. We created prerequisites. If this was my first lecture on chemistry 102 at the university, I would say, okay, the prerequisite is chemistry 101, and you all have to know chemistry 101. And we had a terrible chemistry 101 professor. Go get a tutor. It's not my problem. I'm starting the course at the same place I've done the last 20 years, the same place for all of you. And if you had a very good chemistry 101 teacher, you'll be bored half my class because you already know the stuff, but I'm starting at the same place. Well, if this was a fifth grade and we were starting volcanoes, I couldn't tell the uh, little Tommy, hey, this is, this is what, what you're asking is volcanoes fourth grade. Go ask your mother because we're starting in volcanoes fifth grade, right? Uh, it doesn't work that way. So the first thing is, well, what does the student know? And most of the time we find out what the student knows at the end when he fails, not at the beginning. Very seldom we do any type of, of determination at the beginning. And what, we're, and what the whole theory behind the concept map is, if the, if, the, if the knowledge is organized as propositions, can we make an explicit representation of that knowledge? So concept maps are graphical representation of the organized knowledge that we have in our knowledge structures. So they develop by Novak and they represent organized knowledge, which is concepts of, con consists of concepts connected by linking phrases to form propositions. And by now you figured out that I'm using concept maps to try to explain what a concept map is. So the concept map is in yellow, and the linking phrases are the, this, this little usually verbs or small phrases in white, and the propositions are the, li the links, like uh, organized knowledge is composed of concepts. Organized knowledge is composed of propositions. Concepts are connected by linking phrases to form propositions. Are those are, all those are propositions. And the linking phrase is the most important part of a concept map. Coming up with a list of concepts is very easy. Try to express them in a clear way through propositions. That's the hard part. That's the key because that's what that really shows understanding and meaning, the relationship between those concepts. So there's usually a focus question. Knowledge is created by answering questions. If we have questions, we create new knowledge. And so a concept map is, uh, is really uh, answering a focus question. And cross-links show interrelationship between different map segments. Having a whole hierarchy doesn't show a deep understanding. That deep understanding once comes when, when you make a link between concepts that's sort of far away. And actually, there's a lot of work on, on, on people who say that at people, uh, uh, and, and you probably has, uh, uh, know this, uh, people who get prizes like Nobel, Nobel Prizes in physics and chemistry, and economics is a good example. They're usually not economics, they're usually mathematicians or they come from another area because they see things differently and they're able to say, hey, this concept over here is really related to this other concept over here. And nobody had ever thought of the thinking about, about the relationship because they were far away in everybody's cognitive structure. 
And so an organized knowledge is necessary for effective learning. And let me show you a few examples of concept maps. So this is a simple concept map by about a fourth or fifth grader. It's hierarchical. Doesn't have to be tree-like. It's hierarchical because there's a conceptual hierarchy in a cognitive structure with respect to every domain. And people confuse that with the fact that it has to be tree-like. But it's easier to start making maps in a tree-like fashion. Like, but it says plants have roots, and roots absorb minerals. Some plants have stems, and that may be brown. So they have leaves, and they require water. So you can see the propositional structure. It's trying to express what this student knows about plants, probably fourth or fifth grade. This is a high school student. That's a map about birds. Um, it's a little bit deeper in understanding. It talks about the, uh, a rapid digestive system necessary for a high metabolism that provides energy that much is required to fly. It provides uh, also the hollow bones and the rapid digestive system provide a light body weight that help to fly. So it's deeper in its understanding than the plants. And concept maps are like a language. I mean, a, a, a kindergarten kid uses the same English that Shakespeare. One uses it a little bit better than the other, but it's the same language. So concept map is something that you can learn in terms of expressing yourself better. Um, we work them with very small kids. Actually, working with three-year-olds making concept maps is extremely simple. You tell them, tell me things about the butterfly. And say, oh, the butterfly is orange, and the butterfly is black. And they tell you all stuff. It's when you work with adults that it gets difficult. Uh, <laughs> and actually, you can get them to negotiate, collaborate. And uh, there's an interesting paper uh, that was presented recently at a concept mapping conference about about two-year-olds two discussing whether the butterfly was an animal because of the, some of them said that it was too small. Animals have to be big like elephants, right? And uh, tigers. And the, the, uh, so they agreed to go and ask their parents, and the next day they came back and the other, they said, oh, yes, yes, butterflies. And a bee went by and said, and that is also an animal, even though it's very small. And so if you have a two-year-old uh, daughter or son or nephew, you know that two, that's they're at the age and they say, why? And you ask them and they say, why? And you answer it until you tell them, shut up now. Don't ask so many questions, right? <laughs> uh, and why is, what's happening? They're trying to understand the world by linking concepts to other concepts. This is the natural way of understanding the world. Trying to, and you, you make a response and they ask, they want to go one step ahead. Unfortunately, uh, these kids probably get to first grade and the, the teacher will tell them uh, that's a geography question and we're in math now and wait until geography and well that's the that's the the end of that inquiry uh, kids learning to make maps in another language this is in map in Spanish and I have to translate it but I love this map and it's from a school in Panama I'm going to talk about a project I'm involved in in Panama um, I probably need to get somebody to enhance it in Photoshop or whatever but this is a little red riding hood map a little girl in second grade that says that the little that this is the, the these are the, the characters in the little red riding hood and this uh, this is the woodsman and this is the wolf that is trying to eat the little red riding hood that brings the flowers to the grandmother and the woodsman kills the wolf. Now what's interesting to me is this is for the for a girl in second grade that read the story to come up with a level of abstraction of describing the relationship between the characters means a deep it's a deep understanding as opposed to just repeating the story. It didn't try to make a flowchart of the story. No, she was able to understand what they were and express the relationship very clearly. And this was the first map of a second grader. Um, so kids from very early can make maps. It says mammal can, uh, 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 a mammal, what is an animal can be a mammal and a reptile. Not clear whether it thinks it can be both at the same time. But expressing the relationships is something simple. Sometimes they end up with something that's sort of spaghetti-like. 
like this, but it actually is a very good map about measures. Um, then they can be done in the Blackboard, and they can be done in a, in, a, in a notebook, not only on computer, or they can be done individually, or you can start collaborating, or they can put them in cardboards. Uh, oops, that's in Spanish, sorry. Comes from the link to the wrong one. Uh, are they all in Spanish? No, it's a mixture. <laughs> Got it. Um, Something that, and, and, and I'm going to get a little bit more into what we're doing with education. We're very interested in converting uh, or changing, transforming schools that are used to road learning to schools where kids are able to construct their own knowledge by working in projects, by doing research, by, uh, by uh, just trying to get away from memorization. So one of the things that's interesting is that it not all has to be done with computers. You can still do concept maps with, uh, on the board. And here are teachers in a teacher training workshop trying to do a map about, about animals. And of course, they use the computer also. Uh, and here, there's some of those teachers working on it. To move to an environment where kids not only depend on the technology, but there's many ways in which we can involve the, the, the knowledge construction in the way they do. We even have games. We put concepts on the dice and have the kids throw the dice and try to come up with a proposition as a way of learning to create propositional structure. And then they get involved and the maps become part of other projects that the kids that the kids do. Uh, let's skip that. Now, one of the interesting things about concept maps is they're very uh, good to uh, find misconceptions. It's very difficult to do a concept map about a topic that one doesn't understand. Now, writing an essay, that's a whole lot of story. Once we, once we get to, to college, we have at least 12 years of practice on how to write two paragraphs of something that one doesn't know anything about, right? You know, three paragraphs, I'll add something more. And then you're trying to read that. It says, well, maybe the student maybe knows. Maybe it's just that the grammar is incorrect, whatever. Well, there's no such thing. If you, if you make a map, it's going to be clear. Like this student was asked, why do balloons expand when they, they're heated? They said, well, there are two reasons. The molecules become larger, so they take more space. Or they split in half, so there are twice as many molecules. Two misconceptions. Um, road learning map, where somebody that has a deeper understanding. It comes completely linear. There's no structure. Uh, something that you might be surprised, a lot of the maps that we get from medical students look like this. There's a lot of road learning in medicine. And then you go and put your health in their hands, right? Okay. And we don't, now going to technology, we don't only want to stop by having build a map. What we, what we have is the possibility of taking advantage of new technology. Ten minutes? Gee. Okay, better rush. Forget about this. Well, be able to link all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I just want to take a couple of minutes to, to, to make one point clear. Uh, this is a map that we use when, uh, when doing knowledge acquisition to create an expert system to diagnose heart disease. And uh, if you, if, even if you're not a cardiologist, the, the, the propositional nature is clear. You can read it. But if I take a linking phrase out and say, what is the relationship between blue fingers and ischemia? Without the linking phrase, there's no knowledge. And the theory tells us that. We create, the, the knowledge is, 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 is organized in terms of propositions. And so the point is the linking phrase is the big distinction between the concept maps and other graphical representations like mind maps. Mind maps do not require a linking phrase, and they're good for brainstorming, but they're not a good way to convey knowledge and share knowledge, because if you take the linking phrases, there is no knowledge. Now here you might figure things out because, well, you know what the relationship is. You don't know if the student really has it clear. Here some, some might have a problem with this part, say, I have no idea that the birds have hollow bones. bones. And if I put the other map like this, you'd probably be surprised 
and say, hey, what's that? I don't know. So without the linking phrases, it's almost impossible to convey any knowledge. And maps can get quite complicated, like this one or these other ones. Just to, you don't get the feeling that only, you can only make maps with Git. And we have whole websites that are organized as maps. OK. So what we have developed is software that allows you to not only build maps, but save them, publish them on the web, share, collaborate synchronously or asynchronously. Uh, we, we like to think of concept maps being linked to each other to create what we call a knowledge model. We have a, what we call a low threshold. We get, we get teachers in Panama, and I tell you, it's not that they have never used a computer, they've never seen a keyboard. So they sit in front of a keyboard and say, the letter R, I saw it. There was somewhere around here. There it is, one letter. Okay, next letter. And in 10, 15 minutes, we have them make concept maps because the interface is very simple. We put them to make concept maps. We don't teach them anything about windows or files or menus. We put them in an environment that's meaningful to them. But we also wanted a software that had a high ceiling. And so by high ceiling, I want to show you an example, which is a collection of over 100 maps and thousands of resources that were developed by the Center for Mars Exploration at NASA in which these maps were built by the director of the, uh, of the center himself. And it says Mars, well, Mars is studied by meteorite analysis and space missions that have address science goals and whatever. And the icons underneath means there's other information related to this concept. So if you're interested in uh, space missions, this is a concept map about space missions. This one looks like text and, and image. It's probably a web page. But if I go into space missions, then it loads a map about space missions. And from here, I can go, for example, and look a map about rovers. And from here, I can go and see videos, and I can just navigate through this. What's interesting is the, the whole website, the whole collection of maps and all the organization was built by the expert, basically without the need of any type of webmaster or whatever. So the organization of the knowledge is based, of, of, the, of the information is based on the expert's knowledge. And he was the director of, uh, or he is the director of the Center for Mars Exploration, so he's got a good idea of what Mars is like. Uh, and this is a very popular site with people looking for information about Mars. Now, it also allows you to navigate and, what, and look for information whichever way you're interested in. I can go through human exploration. I can go into myth and science fiction. It doesn't say, hey, to learn about Mars, you first have to know that it's a, uh, the end planet from the, from the sun. And here I can go and find out about the Martian canals or H.E. Wells or whatever, canals. So we go from very small, working with very small kids, to whole sites created by experts. And th something that we're very interested in is the possibility of collaborating and sharing. Uh, publishing is key in the project, and now I'm going to start specifically talking about the project in Panama, because the web has become an information-consuming place. You guys can publish and you have blogs, whatever, but 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet don't publish. And they don't have an easy way to publish, and they don't know how to publish. And, we, and, and, and you know, students go and copy and paste from all sites, and they prepare these beautiful reports that they never read, and they hand it in. And you know exactly where they changed the source, right? Um, Berners-Lee said that a lot of, of the original dream was not yet implemented. Um, the links on the webs are lost and things like that. But more important than Alan Kay, the Turing Award winner, uh, really complains that the people who did the web browsers, I think, were too loosey to do the authoring part. It's only a browsing part. And we're very concerned and interested in the kids being able to publish. So one thing that we're doing uh, 
in Panama. This is an effort by the by the uh, by the government of Panama of introducing this into I'll go fast here into a thousand schools throughout the country and introducing meaningful learning and a collaboration network among schools. So for example, all the schools have a CMAP server with a public IP address. Public IP address means I can get to any of the work that's being done by any of the kids in any of the schools. Now, that in the States is almost impossible to do, right? The schools are overprotected. They can't, kids can't even publish out, let alone let, it, let anybody go in. So uh, one of the things that happened while we were doing, let me just go ahead here. While we were doing the teacher training, uh, teachers come for two weeks. Some come from remote areas, so they stay for the week. On the weekend, they come back, then they come again from very remote areas. And we started to ask along the way to the teachers to make one of the maps in one case was do a map of who am I? It looked like their biography of the map. So we thought this would be a good, good idea because supposedly you're familiar with yourself, and the first map you do is something that's, that you should be familiar with. Something that happened was very interesting. First, they got very interested in it. In it. Uh, and then we find out, and his, this, this is an example of a map, and I took away the, the name. The soon as they got to their town, wherever it was, they would go to the internet cafe and Google themselves. Because whenever you save a map into a CMAP server, it automatically becomes a web page, uh, HTML, and it's accessed like the web. So the sense of pride of going back and saying, look, on Monday, I had no idea what a computer back was. Now I'm on the web, right? And they kept their friends. And all the, the, the teachers will go back and say, this is great. Then they would come back after the weekend and come with pictures of their kids and their family and link the pictures. Now, the maps get very, very, get very personal, and they, got, and, the, and, and they get pictures uh, here. For example, this is probably a picture of, of, of OK, this is a picture of the teacher, right? And, and unfortunately, they go into details of even uh, all the details about the family, and we're trying to get away from that. But we found this says, hey, this is interesting. If they make a map of, of, of who am I, and this is so good, it gave, it gave them a sense of belonging. Since the teachers came with the principal, we started to say, why don't you make a map of your school? Who am I? So they started to make about a map about the school. So this is a map of one of the schools. Uh, and the, the maps were, 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 were very particular for every school. And so we, we made a map about the school. And this became an interesting negotiation between the teachers and the principal. And so they started making links to the map of the school to the maps of the teachers. Because just by a drag and drop, you can start making links. And the links can be across servers. And now the teacher, the principal, will come back to the school and call all the parents and say, we're on the web. We have a presence on the web. And this didn't involve any design, webmaster or anybody helping with HTML. They just made a map about their school. Um, and then we started, then the teacher started saying, hey, one thing that we could do is start having the kids do a map of who am I. So this is a map by one of the students. Uh, I think I have another one here that's more colorful in terms of. No. Uh, and so what, what has ended up happening is, probably, I probably should go here first. When you go to the, to, the project, to the project's website, and you go into the map of Panama of schools, then you go, I'm going to show you this in Cuna Yala. 
And Jorge can probably better explain where Cunayala is. This is an indigenous region. To get there, you either get by plane or by boat, sometimes by boat or in mule. There's no way to drive there. Uh, in fact, uh, English is more of their language than, than Spanish. Many of these schools are so remote, you an idea, that in some cases, it would put the computer, turn on the computer, and the whole electricity for the town was gone because there was not enough electricity. Uh, in some cases, they have a, a power plant and a satellite connection, and now this is the only link to the outside world. So you go to this little school, and this is a map about the school. And let me tell you a few interesting things. It's a very small school with two teachers. And and this says, the school has a boat. okay, And the boat has a motor. And the school has an organization that brings rice and cookies and cream for the student. Very, very personal about the students. And they go into the details. Some other schools will talk about the projects. Some have the name of the ladies who come and clean in the afternoon. Very interesting. Then you go and make a link to the map about the teachers that went to the workshop. And they go to the map. This is very simple. Uh, the software is now in the, the Kuna language, which means that now they can make better maps. Here they were struggling with the Spanish. And so here's the map of Dixon. And, uh, Here's the, here's the teacher. Now, this person had never, ever even dreamed about using the internet. Way, way remote. Now, his school, his students, and his family, basically, are on the web. They have a presence on the web. Uh, this is another teacher from that school. There were two teachers. Five minutes. So, I brought the picture of the sun. Now, what is, what is, what is interesting then is that starting from the school from the uh, map of regions we can get to any of the schools maps and these are we don't have the, the thousand schools here in the project they're about 700 but they're probably about 500 maps online and most of them are in the server in the school. They're not in a centralized server. I was accessing, in many of these cases, the server in the school, which links to each of the classes. So we got every one of the classes to make a map. We're the fifth grade class. Now, each of the fifth grade maps uh, has a teacher map. The, the, the teacher will have a link to the class map. That's their own personal map. Then we got into a Who Am I student map. Then we got the school's projects maps, in which they indicate how they're collaborating with other schools. And then some of the teachers have other particular teachers' map. Like one of the teachers found out that the, the, the town she lived in was not on the web. So she made a map about the town and made links about all the things around the town to her map and mapped it to her. So now she's very proud. She went back and said, our town is on the web now. People can find out what our town is about. And then the kids are now going to the point of having the kids select which of the maps they publish. So over 100,000 kids in the project are starting to link the maps. So this is a huge collection, a huge mesh of maps that is in the tens of thousands that they just created all themselves with all the, the, the just by taking the map and saving it in the, in, the, in the school server. Now, what this has brought, which is interesting, is a huge sense of belonging. Many of the projects I've been involved with, you train the teachers, you get the people, they go back, and they go back to do whatever they were doing before. 
Well, this from the very beginning, they feel a sense of being part of the project. And of course, they give them a presence of the web, which is key. And it also gives the kids an idea that they can publish. Now, for some of these kids, being able to publish their knowledge is very important. We now have a different problem. Uh, we have all these kids making maps, hundreds of thousands of maps. And we have a website where you can search. We have like a Google, but only for maps because they're all indexed. So now every time you make a search in Spanish, you usually get a map from a kid in Panama. And sometimes they're very, not very complete. Um, so we are now have the problem of how do we filter these so we can get them only to publish what maps are good. But, they're, but that's good. We're getting a lot of the kids being able to publish and getting accustomed to publish. And that's not something that we usually do with elementary school kids. These are first to sixth grade. This is not high school kids. Okay? Um, so in general, the project... Uh, is led by the Ministry of Education and the Secretary for Governmental Innovation. And it's been possible basically because it's sort of a pet project of the president. So getting from zero to 1,000 schools all within a, a connected uh, and with this networking uh, has been a big effort. So one of the interesting uh, aspects then for us is how, how, can, how can this grow? Let me show you. Uh, this is a map of where the software is being used right now. So we got, we got, I don't know, we get tens of uh, uh, thousands of downloads a month. And what we're getting is lots of usage all over the world, hundreds of servers. And we see this as a possibility that we're expanding to schools in other countries. There's a big project in, in Italy. And now they're starting to do the same and starting to link with the kids in Panama and have them all publish and do their own networking, uh, uh, I mean, meshing of the maps. And one thing that's, of course, interesting is now we're starting to give every kid an email address and every kid a chat. And this is a, a Google email, well, with a different domain. So now we're going to start seeing the kids communicating with other kids. As soon as you're able to find the other kid, you get, you're able to see their map and see who they are. And they can find their cousin is in the other part of the country. So uh, we see that as, a, as an interesting possibility. Uh, so. I'm out of time. Um, I wanted to show you a little bit about the theory behind concept mapping, what the concept map is, not so, not so much about the tool, and how it can be an interesting way of sharing knowledge, not only by experts. I, we have a lot of projects where we've captured expertise like uh, um, cardiologists. We work a lot with the power plants, uh, with their retiring nuclear engineers, whatever. But I wanted to share how putting this in the hands of kids can get a huge collection of resources that are linked to each other. Uh, the software is free. Oh, it says free for education. Now it's free for everybody. Uh, so it's, uh, now it's free. You can download it, use it in an organization if you're interested. And uh, thank you very much. Knows their times for question. A, we have a break now to 
No, what we have is a way to rank them. So people can say this is a better map than the other and what we, what we promote that the kids build on each other's maps. So if you're building a map about birds and you look at that map and say now what I can do is make up, go deeper into one of the concepts and expand that map more than trying to merge them. Yes? Okay, um, the, the maps, when you save a map, it's saved in HTML and that's indexed by Google if, you, if your CMAP server is indexed. Now, every, we have also an index server running with Lucene that takes all the maps and index them and there's a website, cmappers.net, www.cmappers.net, where you can search for those maps also. But they're, they're indexed automatically by Google. We had a hard time because our maps are, are uh, a JPEG with uh, JavaScript and Google always considered it to be pornography. So we had a hard time trying to get them to index them, but they're indexed. Guess we're all uh, for coffee then. Thank you. <laughs>